Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Hello and welcome everyone to the Movement Made Better podcast. Our guest today has a master's degree in applied neuroscience. Mr. Ryan Glatt, we'll turn it over to you. Thanks for having me, guys. It's exciting to be here. I've been tracking Stick Mobility for a long time. So it's like, pinch me, I'm on their podcast. (laughs) And so my background is I've been in the fitness industry for 11 years, even though it looks like I'm only 11 years old, (laughs) 29. And I started in the fitness industry when I lost a bunch of weight, not not too untypical of like a transformation story and wanting to help others. And at first I lost weight, I was an overweight kid growing up. And at first I lost weight playing a video game called Dance Dance Revolution. Familiar. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of like in high school, late high school, like led me to, you know, getting to the gym and lifting weights. And I saw some trainers there and I was kind of like learning from them and became a trainer to help other people do it. Wanted to go the physical therapy route. So got my bachelor's in exercise science. All the while I was kind of working as a personal trainer. I'm not like the best physical manifestation of fitness when you look at me. So I quickly kind of went into corrective exercise because like the intellectual components and like I just, wasn't into the weight loss, muscle gain stuff. It was a little superficial for me. Very important, but not really. Even the weight loss was part of my transformation journey. I just didn't like dealing with that aspect of fitness. So quickly driven towards corrective exercise. I wanted to go the physical therapy route. Got my bachelor's in exercise science. Didn't really do the GRE as well. So I didn't get into anything in the US. I got into a physical therapy program in Scotland. I lived in West Africa for a year, working in like an outpatient clinic there, kind of like as an international internship type thing. Went to Scotland, had the wrong visa. They put me in an immigration detention jail for seven days and deported me back to LA. Wow. It was really weird. Like no one knew why that happened, but it just did. Wow. It was fun memoir. And then when I came back, I'm like, well, what do I do? Like I want to put my hands on people and, you know, get them moving better and do manual therapy and all that stuff. So I simultaneously enrolled in the Gray Institute's Fellow of Applied Functional Science and the Anatomy Trained Structural Integration Program. So I did those in parallel, which was really cool. It was kind of like my own master's, if you will, in that area. Mm -hmm. Everyone was like, you know, coming from both sides in both programs, like, you should be happy you didn't go to PT school or massage school. Like, this is this is the way. It's like uh, the Mandalorian, like, this is the way. <laughs> um, and so I was happy being there. And when I finished those programs, I felt like I had a pretty good skill set. And I was the only anatomy-trained structural integrator in LA. And I oh. a massage therapist because I Colorado and New York had these laws where if you're going to be a rolfer or a structural integrator, you have to be a massage therapist. So I kind of slipped under the radar. I was able to practice, get my license to touch. Did a lot of continued education with Tom Myers, who's an amazing teacher. Worked in like golf performance and a pelvic floor health facility and all sorts of stuff. And I really enjoyed body work. It like taught me empathy. It satisfied my intellectual side. It satisfied my need to help people and be valuable. And I really enjoyed it. And I kind of mentioned earlier, before I got into the fitness side at my community college, I was studying animal behavior. And so gaming and, and behavior and neuroscience has always kind of been there as an interest. And then I started to kind of notice that my clients really had trouble with uh, remembering things and processing information and regulating their their cognition to the extent where they could focus on their own health. And even though like the most successful people I work with struggled cognitively, mental health wise, cognitive health wise, I'm like, what can I do to help these people? Just kind of, I kind of became a glorified massage therapist, even though I held myself at a higher regard. We think of things very like this. That's kind of what I became to people was 
you know, for the the wealthy and entitled, I was like a glorified massage therapist that just could go deep, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of what I became, but I wanted to be more than that. I didn't want to just become someone's massage therapist. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Mm -hmm. the the relationship can be immensely powerful, but I wanted to help people. I don't want to say in a, a more impactful way, but in a different way, kind of at a deeper level and not like a life coaching, like transformational type thing, but really impact their lives beyond the physical. And so it's not energetic metaphysical thing, like literally just their day-to-day behavior. How can I assist with that? I know by making them feel better and by promoting exercise and movement and mobility, they will feel better cognitively, psychologically, physically. That will help their day. But they're interacting with the world externally, not so much through movement. Usually we have to do stuff because they're not moving enough not because they're moving too much. I mean, that's dependent. If they're an athlete or they're using their body for work, it's different, but you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You know, so putting the pro, I start to research like, well, how does the brain get healthier psychologically, cognitively, structurally, functionally, and exercise kept showing up. I'm like, well, this is convenient. I'm in the exercise profession, right? So if exercise is one of the most powerful tools to enhance brain health, how can I help people using that? But the problem it, w- it was too general. It's like, we know that exercise can facilitate neurogenesis and the process of new neurons and grow the hippocampus and improve cognition, improve mental health. But that was so general. When I was going through that, I'm like, okay, this is good. This is good that exercise is so powerful, but how and why and for whom? Like, there's no specificity. So if I have a mobility program or a pain program or a performance program or weight loss program or muscle, there are specifics, right? We have periodization, we have acute variables, we have goals. It depends. There's biological individualization, but everyone in the industry, including experts was just like, yeah, exercise is good for your brain. I'm like, that's not good enough for me. Mm. Get more specific. That's like saying mobility is good for you. Food is good for you. Vegetables are good for you. That is, if we just, you know, simplified it to that for nutrition, like the whole field of nutrition would like be pissed if we just, oh, <laughs> you know, these, these small, these grand generalizations. So I'm like, okay, exercise is good for the brain. Let's get more specific because there's different types of brain function. There's regional lobes and there's structure versus function. There's brain networks and there's this micro level with the neurons and the transmitters and the blood flow and the growth factors. And there's the macro level and there's the behavioral level with cognition and different types of mental health. So like, what is the exercise prescription for all of that? I was trying to figure that out. Simultaneously, I was trying to bring my love of gaming back. It's always been there, but incorporate it into my profession. And I stumbled upon this research that combined cognitive tasks with exercise simultaneously. So cognitively demanding exercise. So extra gaming, like Dance Dance Revolution, the Nintendo Wii, the Xbox Connect, these are all like consumer commercialized versions of that. Mm-hmm. But studies trying to use it clinically. I'm like, they're using targeted video games to improve brain and body health. I'm like, count me in. And so there's these things like blaze pods and fit lights and things that I got my hands on that were starting to pop up. I basically threw a bunch of stuff and speed agility equipment in the back of my car and I drive to people's homes. I started working with kids with learning disabilities. I got my fitness specialist. I basically quit my job as a massage, uh, a body worker, glorified massage therapist, as I called myself. And I started working at a neurofeedback facility and just like immersing myself in all the research and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then as I was kind of like fumbling along this path and I started working with older adults and special pops and stuff like that, I decided, you know what, I want to take this to the next level. I was kind of networking with researchers and I uh, came across this researcher that did research at UCLA where they took a memory training program where they taught older adults 
with memory issues, how to memorize names and faces better and things like that. And they took a group in a lecture format and took a group and put them on the bike. And the people on the bike had better memory performance. So I got in contact with her. I found she was doing a similar type of training. She had a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. We started working together. Uh, about a year into our relationship, she connected me to this place called the Pacific Brain Health Center, where I've now been for about three years to mm-hmm. boots on the ground and start this brain gym program. It's called the Fit Brain Program. And I have about a 3,000 square foot space where we work. We have all these technologies of VR and brain training lights and technologies and screens and things like that to stimulate the brain with the body, with movement simultaneously. It's called dual tasking. And so uh, I've been here for three years. We're in the midst of kind of doing some really cool research with things at home using VR and tablets on an exercise bike. Uh, We have all sorts of fun toys in here that we use for clinical purposes. Like if you have an attention problem, we play an attention game. And if you have a balance problem, problem, we do a balance exercise at the same time. And so it makes sense. That's the specificity approach. And then I was really, I had like a really windy, frustrating journey. And so I'm like, okay, what if other fitness professionals wanted to learn this, right? Mm -hmm. This is really like just piecing together the puzzle, like, you know, a desperate ADHD Sherlock Holmes is not really realistic for most people, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do we actually get this education as relevant to fitness and health professionals and movement professionals? So I started to outline this course and I brought this course to ACE, the American Council on Exercise. And this is before I worked at the center, before I completed my master's in applied neuroscience. And they said, this is great. You're just really not qualified enough. I said, okay. And I went to the Functional Aging Institute, who certifies personal trainers to work with older adults. It's owned by Dr. Cody Seip and Dr. Dan Ritchie, one of the great smart guys. And we decided to do something together. And so we did. And we released the course about a year and a half ago. I authored the whole thing, got a couple of neuroscientists like, yes, you're, you're correct in, the, in this approach. And then what I did from there is I launched the course, kind of the version one. And then it's been up and running for almost two years now. About three months ago, we just finished the updated version. And now ACE is carrying that and has actually merged it with their new senior fitness specialist course. So it's actually a part of their senior fitness specialist because my dream was to see if we could actually make the standard brain health education and neuroscience education standard for the fitness professional. And so I'm really happy that ACE has done that now. And so when you go through the senior fitness course, brain health is just a part of it because that's a big problem. We have a cognitive and mental health epidemic that has been worsened by the current epidemic. About three months before that, I didn't finish my master's. And now I'm just continuing to educate in the industry, work on cool research projects and see if we can move the industry forward. So that's my backstory. That's awesome, man. That's great. I know we're talking, you just talked about working this program with older clientele. But with young people, it's kind of hard to get them to think about, okay, training the brain versus training just muscles and aesthetics. Uh, So we do that. So you would say we should do that by sneaking in some task-based exercises? Not necessarily. So when people hear that I do this like combined brain body, cognitive motor, dual tasking thing, they hear that is the ideal. It's the best thing to do. That's both true and not true. Okay. Uh, Research is coming out suggesting that cognitive motor dual tasking may provide similar results or better results cognitively for mostly older adults. Okay. When we're eight, when we're growing up as kids, like here's the ceiling of cognition. Like cognition is a set of mental functions that your brain uses to interact with the world around you and also inside of you. Things like attention, memory, processing speed, 
planning and organizing and something called executive functions that's in the frontal lobe. And so these change over the lifespan. They're developing as you grow up. They peak around your mid-20s, and then they steadily, some of them, not all of them, they, they can decline with age. Certain cognitive functions stay intact, other ones age, and then there's abnormal aging. There's Parkinson's, there's MS, there's cognitive impairment, there's Alzheimer's disease, there's various types of dementias. You know, the brain's a very sensitive, complex, and organ, so it's affected by metabolic disorders, cardiovascular issues, medications, cancer, and chemotherapy. So it, it's, it's included in everything, and symptoms of brain aging can show up in 20, 30, 40 years of age, 50 years of age, decades earlier before any pathologies might manifest or symptoms might manifest. So brain health is a goal for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if you're not experiencing like a condition or a disease, we might have a bad night of sleep or we might have stress or we might just feel that we're not as attentive as we should be and feel the deficit. Feel, I mean, you have felt that when you're not as well rested, you feel mm-hmm. you feel not attentive. You feel like it's challenging to get work done using those executive functions. So the brain being so sensitive to this stuff, it, it behooves us to address it, Right. So what are the ways to address it? Well, dual tasking is one subcategory. I'm going to put that to the side for now. The first thing is exercise. If you're not exercising, exercise. Well, how much? Well, the physical activity guidelines for second Americans, you've probably heard this before, 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise per week, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. can be boiled down to five times a week of 30 minutes, three times a week of 45 to 60 minutes. You know, Pick your poison, pick your configuration. Most people in the like the not in the fitness industry, like the general population, are not doing that. Mm-hmm. A very general recommendation that's kind of like really that's kind of boring. It's kind of dumb. It's a good one to get people hitting as a minimum. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like the minimum recommendations for macronutrients or micronutrient values. And there's ranges. So in the recent edition of that, those recommendations includes brain health benefits. So if you hit that 150 minutes you're going to get some generalized brain health benefits. That includes, we can get into like defining regions of the brain and, you know, what kind of like, you know, hippocampal volumes, improvements in cognition, improvements in mood. Does that mean less than that won't get you those benefits? Not necessarily. So the effect sizes will probably just be a little bit different. We need more research to determine like what's too much, what's too little, but even walking can improve the the volume and the function of the temporal lobes, which are responsible for things like verbal memory, memory formation, the hippocampus is deep in the temporal lobe, stuff like that. So those are the minimums. And then there's additional benefits for higher intensities, additional benefits for 300 minutes or more minutes, additional benefits for strength training, additional benefits for neuromotor exercise, which is a category that's not really talked about. It's like coordinative exercise, hand-eye coordination, postural control, balance exercises, but also like dance, sports, martial arts, or the mind-body exercises like Tai Chi, Qigong, Pilates, yoga, and also dual tasking. And dual tasking is a is a basically artificial neuromotor activity because it's present in sports, dance, and martial arts. You are dual tasking. You're using your brain and body at the same time. But there's unique value propositions from a neurobiological standpoint in aerobic, in resistance, and in neuromotor. And there's different subcategories. And then you have your individual biology, and then you have your goals, and then you have all the acute variables. So that's we can go very general to very specific. And that's sort of the message I like to give people is if exercise is medicine, you don't just say Advil. Like there is a dosage, there is a timing, right? So exercise prescription is this one thing that I believe fitness and movement professionals have like disacknowledged as a skill set. Nobody uses it. And I think that's, it's interesting that when quarantine hit, so many fitness professionals were out of work. 
because all they could do is facilitate movement and techniques. What about health coaching? What about mm-hmm. prescription and creating programs and making sure people adhere to those? So we're still focused in our industry on you being the person that does the stuff for another person that we miss out on things like exercise prescription. And so it's not about the one technique, whether it's a dual task or a mobility drill with the person. It's this is an organism. What is the environment you're creating around them or facilitating around them that includes exercise? What should that prescription be? In fact, you should be okay with none of it being done with you. you if you happen to be doing stuff with you, there's a lot more you can control and give value for, and that's great. But I don't think people think that way. They just think one to three times a week, everything outside of that's not my business. That's stupid. We're not helping people like that as much as we could if we had this prescription that we played a role in. So that's like, you know, exercise prescription. We talk about that, like health coaching and behavior comes to mind, which is a really important skill set for health and fitness professionals to have, regardless of what your specific position is. If you're a therapist or a massage therapist or a trainer, behavior change is super important, which is, I love what ACE is doing with their behavior change specialists. Uh, National Board of Health and Wellness Coaches is starting to standardize. I just completed my board exam with them. So health coaching and, and behavior change, is it goes hand in hand with what I'm talking about. Because uh, I, I think you know what I mean. It's like this technique obsessed, this technique focused industry is really vulnerable if that's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it doesn't matter you know, what technique you're using if you can't get your patients, your clients to actually do this stuff on their own on a regular basis. So we need to do, Dennis and I try to get people to do things that are engaging and then that they enjoy, that they have fun with. So find an activity like, oh, you know, if it's cardiovascular, you know, maybe it's hiking, you know, maybe it's it's running, but get them into the environment where they'll actually do it. Yeah. And I think enjoyment's an important part of like what we call a BHEPAP, a brain health exercise and physical activity program. What is in that? What are the ingredients of BHEPAP that would give you the best chance of maintaining brain health? both structurally, functionally, cognitively, psychologically, perhaps. And enjoyment is one factor. So we have the fit principle, right? Frequency, intensity, time, and type. Mm-hmm. So those considerations are really important to consider in a BHE path. But there's also what I'll call like softer acute variables, enjoyment, variability. What is the skill demand? What is the cognitive demand? What's the environment? And within environment, indoor, outdoor, social, not social, virtual, in-person, these are all things that will affect the brain, right? And it's not to create overwhelm, but one of the roles that we should have as fitness professionals that's different than the rep counter is the skill teacher and the person who modifies those variables, right? Over time for individuals based on their goals and based on what data is available. And so that's kind of where I'm trying to encourage people to go. And so in creating a BAG path, you do need to consider enjoyment. But the problem with like celebrity doctors or people like, Oh, brain health, mental health, it's easy. Just find something you enjoy. That's all you need. Well, what if they're not hitting the minimum number of minutes from Mm. doing resistance training because they enjoy hiking and they heard from this celebrity doctor? As long as you do something that you enjoy, that's all that matters. No, it's not all that matters. It's not that aerobic exercise is the best for brain health. It's not that dance is the best thing for your brain because you use your brain. So I think celebrity doctors and influencers and people out there mean well, but they dismiss the unique benefits of other approaches like the ones I'm talking about. And that's the problem. And so if we were generalists and we say, all you need to do to lose is lift weights, that's it. It's very simple. Like that would create an outrage, right? If, if that, like there's 
we know there's more, even the general population knows it can be more nuanced than that, right? And so from, from the brain health perspective, if we are having a cognitive decline epidemic and a mental health epidemic, and it affects not just old people, why are we accepting these generalities? Why is it just like, oh, as long as you exercise and you enjoy it, you're fine. Yes, that will help, sometimes significantly. Can we go a little bit deeper than that, please? I think we're capable of doing that. And so that's why I get upset, but I want to create education for people to follow that path, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know we get a lot of questions from, you had mentioned Parkinson's and some neurological disorders. We get questions a lot as far as, you know, how to utilize the sticks with people with these conditions. We we direct people to clinicians. We say, look, you know, we're just, we're movement coaches. You need proper medical supervision and advice. But it's, we also let them know, look, you know, are we looking at delaying the inevitable and prolonging and reducing the impact of those symptoms? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that would be our ultimate goal. Well, I think there's several goals and there's, there's kind of different categories of the population that we might want to consider. Some we may work with, some might just be in our family or community, some we may never work with. But there's the worried well, which are like the young, healthier population with no issues. That would be us. Mm-hmm. But raise your hand if you want to take care of your brain. Like who doesn't want to take care of your brain, right? Like you guys are professionals, you're entrepreneurs. If your brain doesn't work, your business doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm as well or as efficiently or you it does work but it's stressful and you burn out and all this stuff so your brain health is important so for us here we're part of the 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 young healthy population but also the worried well we're well but we're worried about our brain health we are not as worried as a six-year-old because they're a little bit older or we may not be worried as much as someone with a high genetic risk for a condition like alzheimer's disease and i don't know your genetics i don't know your health background so i'm just speaking generally But the worried well is the majority of the population we're going to work with. So in that case, the goal would be prevention, prevention of cognitive decline, and perhaps optimization of what you already have. Because prevention as a goal is like, I guess as long as I don't get Alzheimer's, I'm doing good. Like, it's really hard to tell, are you successfully preventing Alzheimer's? Because you don't know until you don't get it or do get it, right? Mm -hmm. So, but you can get testing, cognitive testing, brain scans, things to give you a baseline of performance to say, is your aging or performance normal or is it abnormal relevant to what you're at? And even if it's normal and healthy and maybe even above average, you have a baseline to track over time. That's really important to do. Some of the resources for accessing that are going to be different depending on where you live, how much money you have, what insurance you have, are there available resources? Is it clinical or is it computerized? So there's all these different considerations. And so the worried well is the majority of the population, which prevention the goal and such as optimization, because who doesn't want to feel better cognitively, physically? But then there's individuals with subjective cognitive decline, where I'm noticing something mm-hmm. and not typical. I mean, if I think back months or years or even weeks, I didn't feel like this, right? And that's probably been quarantined for most people, where they mm-hmm. feel different mm-hmm. mentally, cognitively. Their verbal fluencies change. Maybe their attention's different. Their mental health is worse. I think most people can agree with that. Mm-hmm. Something changed in our environment that caused a subjective, meaning you noticed it, decline in your brain health, right? There's no denying that. And that's kind of, it knows no age. I think everyone's affected to a degree. And so with that said, what if that was the goal, can we address it? And so if we said, all right, I have subjective cognitive decline, whether, whether it be memory, attention, mood, 
all of the above. And I want to address that through exercise. How would we approach that? That could be a conversation that we have. And I could get some general recommendations. And I think we can go general to specific. You know, are you meeting the 150 minutes or did you find yourself getting more sedentary? Yeah, join the club, right? Do you have something you enjoy? Did you used to go to the YMCA or 24-hour fitness and because those classes closed down, you lost social support, you lost movement, you lost something you really enjoyed? Can we replace that? Are you getting outside if that's important to you and you're stuck inside all day? Are you exercising by yourself and finding it's not you know, as good as you want it? Can you do a live Zoom or something in the park? So there, there's all these, it's a negotiation exchange, exchange about behavior change that allows you to figure out what would be right for that person with subjective cognitive deficits. But that could also be a 65-year-old that's saying, hey, I feel like I'm changing my memory. It's not significant, but it's concerning. It's not like I don't have a problem. I don't know if it's old age or if it's normal aging or if there's something wrong with me or if it's stress. Okay, that subjective cognitive decline should be assessed. We should refer to a doctor, but then maybe we can consider a program specifically for that person. And it will look different than a person who's worried well that doesn't have a significant of a problem or concern. Then there's the, the diagnostics, right? The mild cognitive impairment or MCI. That's, that's a change in cognition of something that is significant concern. Like I cannot for the life of me remember names and faces and it's abnormal. Like I just can't do it. And some people are like ignorant and they're like, oh, it's just old age and that's normal. And some people are hyper anxious because they lost their keys once and they mm -hmm. think getting dementia. It's somewhere in between. We want to keep our mindset in between. That can eventually convert to something called dementia, which Alzheimer's disease is a very, uh, uh, it's one of the most common subtypes of dementia. And that can be significant decline. It's accelerated. It's chronic. It's neurodegenerative. And it leads to a loss of activities of daily living. It could also be Parkinson's disease or MS or traumatic brain injury or concussion that can occur at any age, right? So it could be all these different things. And so where you are in this trajectory of cognitive decline will likely change our exercise prescription in our approach. So as, as far as the um, you know, exercise prescription for, for ages, right, you would change that too. For what? For depending on someone's age. Yeah, right. absolutely. Like, I think there's some generalizations. Like, if you held me at gunpoint and said, Ryan, give the most general recommendation for everybody. I would say it's got to be a minimum of 150 minutes and it should have some aerobic, some resistance, and some neuromotor. Done. See you next year. Right? Yeah. Say. And also include enjoyment and make sure you're hitting the right intensity level. That's pretty much it. If you do more than that, great. But that's probably the minimum. I would say that, you know, for kids, for instance, there was a huge kind of, um, research debate between Dr. Arthur Kramer and Dr. Charles Hillman, who are like the grandfathers of like exercise. And so if you read the book Spark by Dr. Mm -hmm. John, yep. yeah, they're all over yep. that book. It's all about their research, aerobic exercise, improving the brain, but it's aerobics focused. It's all about aerobics. Now, why would we have so much research on aerobics? Well, we had the aerobics revolution. Aerobics is a lot easier to study in rats than Zumba or resistance training. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just a simpler method and intervention to study. The variables are just easier to control, right? Also, there's the popularity. And when like researchers think exercise, what do you think about? You think about aerobics, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons it's so studied. Resistance training is starting to get its light. And so is neuromotor training and dual tasking included. So that's starting to get more evidence. But Dr. Arthur Kramer and Dr. Charles Hillman they were basically criticized for their methods and kind of exaggerating their effect sizes, I believe, by Dr. Paul Biden, 
who is a like the godmother of executive functions. So she studies executive functions in children, contr- you know, controlling impulses, short-term or working memory, cognitive flexibility or adapt- adapting to unexpected circumstances, emotional regulation, and how that happens in kids. So she was kind of saying it's not just about aerobic exercise and the significance in which you're reporting that it affects these executive functions is off. It's debatable. And so she was suggesting that if we were to truly improve executive functions, we want to directly engage them in a task. So sports, mm-hmm. martial arts naturally do that while perhaps your heart rate is up, right? So that was her argument. I kind of biased with that argument. I think it's a very good argument and it kind of, it fits my bias as well, but it makes sense that we should probably use the brain that we have within the tasks that we do. And that's certainly a lot more convincing for brain health than watching the news or spacing out or using that routine that your trainer gave you or personal physical therapist gave you five years ago. And it's on a piece of paper and you can like, you know, basically talk to anyone while you're going through it, not even think about it. And this is what I like about stick mobility is that promotes focus. We'll get to that. But I would say that not that it improves focus, but you have to focus on what you're doing. You can't just mindlessly do stuff. I mean, you can, you can just hang on. That's fine. But the stuff that requires more volitional effort and focus is likely to improve those resources. It makes sense. It's like the specific adaptation on imposed demand principle for neuroscience, right? And it makes sense. So that was the sort of debate. Adele Diamond mostly does research in kids and certainly, you know, sports, dance, martial arts, theater, even theater arts all require skill learning, active skill learning, kind of embodied mm-hmm. cognition. And there's a great paper with Dr. Philip Tomborowski and um, a few other amazing researchers how that those things improve brain health and cognition through a skill pathway. So that there's kind of the aerobic exercise and the cardiovascular fitness hypothesis that we increase our heart rate, we get blood flow, we get things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF or VEGF, also known as vascular endothelial growth factor. And it's like going from the body to the brain and the brain is like passive receptor organ that's just benefiting from that. But then there's that neuromotor category where the brain's playing an active role right? And there's also simultaneously this physiological set of events that may be synergistic. And so that's why I'm not saying either or, it's both. It's yes and. If you've ever taken improv, it's yes and. And not to mention that resistance training is the contraction of skeletal muscle tissue that not only has indirect effects with the brain, but also releases things like irisin, which is a growth factor that crosses a blood-brain barrier and tells the brain to grow and function better. So if we're going to say that all these things do something different, wouldn't you want all the unique things that those provide? Yeah. 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 You know, regardless of whether you're keto or carnivore or whatever, Uh fats and proteins all have their unique value and your ratio is going to be dependent on your goals and your biology. Yes. People villainize one macronutrient or the other, but that's just human nature. And we probably like reasonable people would agree that they all provide something unique biologically, Uh you know, chemically. So as such with, with exercise modalities. So I knew we should get everyone into rock climbing, man. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, I knew we should get everyone into rock climbing because you've got strength. You've yeah. got, you know, you've got problem solving, solving. You've got your, you get your cardiovascular, you've got mobility. You certainly can. Yeah. You know, so is something is rock climbing something everyone should do. Well, let's define maybe the specific demands of rock climbing. It's an, it's potentially open skill in the sense that you're learning skills and you're using your brain. But unless you're in a dynamic setting like nature, there's not a whole lot you have to react to. It's sort of self-paced, right? So you have closed skills and you have open skills. And neither are bad or good. It's just a spectrum. 
Closed skills are things like running, swimming, probably rock climbing. And once again, it's a spectrum. It's not either or. Open skills are things like dance, sports, martial arts that typically, typically involve other people and more uh-huh. predictable environments. So open skills are probably going to be more cognitively demanding, involve skill learning and unpredictable. That unpredictability, I think, is really what's unique and valuable for cognitive demands because your brain likes to make predictions and it's a real test to see can you react to things on the fly, right? So there's this spectrum. Now, if riding a stationary bike is closed and playing a sport is open, rock climbing is probably a quarter up the spectrum. It's not perfectly closed, but it's not exactly open. And so that's the issue with saying this is the best. Like people would say dance is the best because you got your rain going, you got your cardio at the same time. You're saying rock climbing's got some cardio too. It's got some problem solving. It's typically social. Sometimes it can be in nature. And so we want to recognize every single activity is valuable potentially, but in its own unique way. So that mm-hmm. you can't say anything is the best, right? Yeah. yeah. So if we plot different things on that spectrum, we probably want a mix of stuff. If you do something exclusive, if you only did rock climbing as your neuromotor and you've been doing that for years, on the one hand, you don't want to remove that because there's probably a community around that that's very supportive and social. You know what to expect. That's your flow state. It's probably very uh, enjoy- enjoyable for you. But on the other hand, is there an opportunity for novelty? Now, that novelty could be within rock climbing, do things that are harder or change the environment or go outside instead of indoor. Um, and there's things like just changing the modality and switching from rock climbing to Zumba. Or saying if you do rock climbing three days a week, substituting one day a week with dance or or a martial art, right? So there's all different ways to approach this. There's no right answer. And that's what's so fun about it, is there is no right answer. Is that not everyone is at a place where they can't do anything to better improve their brain health with their exercise program. There's always an opportunity. I've never met someone that doesn't have some, some variable they can modify it wouldn't be variability for variability's sake. It's not just coming to me like, well, I'm an expert, so I'm going to change something. It's like truly, and usually the thing that people are not doing is actually what they need. Not always, but typically. So if someone has problems with coordination, maybe they really should dance and they avoid a dance because they're not coordinated. But it's like chicken to the egg, right? Yeah. And so from a cognitive perspective, people might have specific cognitive goals. Maybe you have a, a processing goal and you feel like you're, you're not as fast as you used to be, and rock climbing self-paced. So if that was your goal, maybe we put you in something like tennis or ping pong or more fast-paced dance. Maybe we increase your participation in high-intensity interval training, which can improve processing speed more indirectly. And so that's how we kind of approach it. If we see and we have all this data on understanding what play and, and exercise does benefiting the brain, especially from a learning standpoint, why are we seeing school systems take that away from kids? And how do, we, how do we reverse that? Like, it's yeah. so frustrating. I think it's bigger than us. I think it's more of a, it doesn't mean we shouldn't like go advocate for it, but I, more of a, a sociocultural kind of thing too. I mean, there's plenty of nonprofits, I think, advocating for this. I don't think that we're at a point where no one wouldn't advocate for it. But then there's like in private schools, for instance, like I want STEM more than I want sport, you know, just people, I think, I don't know. It's really complicated. I know that much. And in John Rady's book, Spark, he does talk about a school that incorporates zero hour PE that has like the highest test grades. It's in neighborhood mm-hmm. Chicago because they do that, right? And so that's kind of the poster child for this concept. So I don't know why schools don't do it. I can't be as, I actually really need to be into that. 
I had this like idea in my head one day I was going to create a school just focused on embodied cognition and movement and exercise. That was kind of a pipe dream. But like, I care about that concept deeply. My, my undergraduate research was on physical activity in toddlers that predicted obesity based on their physical activity levels. I was fat as a kid, so I get it. Like, I think it's important. I think it's really hard to do. <laughs> like, I just don't, mm. that's a fight I can fight well right now in my life. I'm mostly just working with older adults and trying to get them to play more video games that are clinical. Uh, and having success with that in educating fitness professionals. But it is a great question. I think we should continue to ask, why is that the case? I think some smarter people will tell you why they think it's the case, but I think it's really complex. Mm, yeah, I remember reading that book, Spark, um, a long time ago, and didn't they have classrooms set up where they pretty much took away the desks? And the active they're, classroom they're, model. Yeah, active classroom yeah. model. They're, they're playing games, and maybe they're bouncing on a ball, and at the same time, they have to answer a math problem. Yeah, so there's some, like, in, you're going to, like, hate me for this, but it's like, Ryan, didn't you just talk about that being valuable? But there's some pseudoscience, and educational neuroscience for, uh, is filled with pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. So there's several what we call neuro myths, things that are like really strongly adopted and uh, there's awareness of in the general population that are perpetuated, that are not grounded in neuroscience. When I bring up some of these, some people are like, what? some people are upset that they're a myth <laughs> proven. In fact, many of them are disproven. One of them includes the left and right brain person. You can't be a left or right brain person. You can't even okay. side of the brain. That's not how your brain works. Yeah. So people get upset at that. The other one, get ready for this, learning styles, neuromyth. It's not real. It's been disproven. You can't be an auditory learner. You can't be a kinesthetic learner and only be one. You can maybe even psychologically favor one, but it's been, dis it's been debunked. And so there's this whole field of uh, neuroscience-based educational models. The active classroom sounds good on paper, right, but is a little controversial. Because they're like, well, what if you're just distracting the kids from learning? Okay. Mm -hmm. right? And so that may be the case. You actually don't want to be distracted if the goal is learning. You can do stuff before and you can do stuff after. So there's some research showing that, and there's no right answer here, that aerobic exercise beforehand might facilitate better learning and memory consolidation. Doing some sort of neuromotor exercise four hours after the learning bout might facilitate consolidation as well. So there's a lot of little papers saying, hey, we did this on a treadmill, then did this, and this was the result. And there's no right answer, right? I think there's some stuff showing that like 20 minutes of aerobic exercise before learning would best facilitate, but the best and the you know, all that stuff. So then the active classroom model would basically say, well, that's distraction, not an optimization. And so it doesn't mean it's bad, but it depends how it's utilized. And also that study I quoted earlier, the, the older adults were learning memory stuff while they were on the bike, it was kind of a lecture format. Why did it work? And so there is no straight answer. And I think we need more research to determine what is distracting and what is synergistic and facilitative. So that's why this approach, you can't just go running while counting backwards. You can't just bounce a ball in college. You do need to be specific. And there's research that would kind of, what kind of learning is it? Is it motor learning? Is it episodic memory? Is it semantic memory? What kind of exercise was it before and after? And I, some people find that frustrating that more research is needed. I find that exciting because it provides this like precision approach, this more individualized approach. And something that Dr. Gary Gray always says, it depends, right? Mm -hmm. It depends. And I would say that's true for this as well. However, the active classroom model is really 
uh, popular. It's gaining traction. I think there's ways to do it right, and there's ways not to do it. Something that's entered, it kind of still proliferates, is something called brain gym, where they bounce the ball and rub their belly and do some head turns and stand on one leg. And that has some really biased popular research, and it's like entered education systems. And that is actually debunked. It's not good research. There's been systematic reviews that say it's not effective. It's not exercise. It's just like little cross, the cross crawling and yeah. the opposite sides of the body to wire both sides of the brain. It's not proven. And so you can't find any research showing that cross lateralization movements strongly wire both hemispheres of the brain. It's BS, or at least it hasn't been proven. And so there's these really strong neuromyths, especially with education, because who wouldn't like to know best of how to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So neuroscience is tricky because people worship the brain. Also, neuroscience attracts a lot of egotism, narcissism, Dunning-Kruger effect type stuff. So it's a sketchy area. And I've found that a lot of even PhD in the field are, you know, kind of full of it sometimes. And they think they're experts in everything. So it's challenging to say. I was just going to ask you about this whole, <laughs> you know, cross-crawling pattern or crossing midline and if that actually did something. The my, my theory on that is if it did help, it would help because it's coordinative, not because we're wiring hemispheres. Anything that's coordinative is going to be a motor task or a coordinative task. And the, the areas of our brain responsible for that will probably be more active until it's well-learned and then becomes automatic form of skill learning because the human brain learns stuff. That's what it's supposed to do. So we can't assume that that cross-crawl is going to do what it does. And we can't assume that that is the only thing you need to do. It's like how much cross-body stuff is involved in sport or dance? A lot in a lot of variable ways. Mm -hmm. Integrate with. So why try to, you know what I mean? It's like, Sure, if you want to do it or juggle or bounce a ball, that's not harmful. No, no. What people say is like, it's neuroplasticity. It's wiring my brain. I'm using my right hand, so it's my left hemisphere. It's like those gross generalizations is what dampens the sophistication and, and scientific dissemination of correct, accurate neuroscience. And it pisses me off because it's everywhere in the fitness industry. And mm -hmm. fields that proliferate, functional neurology... I love stuff like Z Health and the Carrick Institute and stuff like that. There's a lot of value there. And it's not them themselves, but people come out of those and they think they're gods. And they think like, oh, I do this thing with my eyes and your brain. I'm like, yeah, it's really cringy to me. So it's kind of like if people were quoting fascist science from 10 years ago today, you'd be really cringy, right? That's how I feel with some of this neuroscience stuff. It's like, we're breaking up scar tissue. I'm like, oh, cringy. So I feel that way about neuroscience and we're not there yet, but I'm trying to do my, and I, I feel bad because I feel like a dick sometimes when I'm just like telling people you're wrong. This is a myth. Know your science. But I do feel I need to uphold the standard, which is why I went and got my master's so I could know about research literacy and figure out what I'm talking about and all this stuff. So anyway, We'll see if I get more pissed off as time goes on or if I get <laughs> TV done. Well, you had inferred just a few minutes ago about what we would consider intentional understanding of your movement and what the sticks bring to that. And I think for us, as we've gotten more experienced in our careers, is understanding that, yeah, the body awareness and realizing what is actually taking place through your movements is really something that we want to bring to our clientele. Yeah, I think there's this really nice emerging science on mind-body exercise. 
article about it for um, personal fitness professional. I'd be happy to send you, but it's really focused on the. So when I broke down the neuromotor category, there's the skill-based and the mind-body exercise. And the mind-body exercise stuff is interesting because it basically talks about yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong. And we would consider these exercise interventions that are not typically as metabolically demanding as what we've come to know as exercise, right? And they have coordinative elements, they have mindfulness elements, they have skill learning elements, they have social elements, they have you know parasympathetic, sympathetic, or autonomic nervous system elements. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And people like to say, it's the vagus nerve, and it's this, and it's that. There's no one thing. They're really complex. And I think that's what contributes to their multi-level, multi-faceted benefits. And so I wrote an article about those. More research is needed, not surprisingly. But there's a lot of stuff from yoga and Tai Chi and Pilates that shows cognitive benefits and motor benefits, primarily in older adults with and without neurological and cognitive impairments, because that's where most of the funding is. And so those things have been found to be very beneficial, but it depends on what kind and what was the intervention, what was the population. And so I, as I think about my past experience with body work and I think about my past experience with being, you know, one of the, one of the first trainers for trigger point and stuff like that and following that line down, I've always thought about this. Of First, I, I kind of like switched to exercise, like divorce the body work, fascia, mobility stuff but I'm like slowly gravitating back towards it to see if like, what is the neuroscience perspective? And before I got into exercise, I was studying like pain neuroscience and therapeutic neuroscience education. And I find that it's kind of like very split. You got the fascists, the people who like fascia, and you got the anti-fascists who are like the people, and I don't mean fascist. As yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've heard that, right? And yeah. so there's people who like, and no one, like, this is another great example. Like, nobody knows really how to debate that well. It's just like, it's about fascia or it's about the brain and there's no agreement in the middle. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle and I, I can see both sides, right? I think our understanding of fascia and the brain are both evolving in parallel. So it's really hard to say exactly what's happening. My bias is that this stuff is more neural than we think, but I think people feel unheard or unjustified when they hear that it's neural because they assume that I'm saying or someone else is saying that's not about the body. But there's a, there is this thing called embodied cognition where there are nerves in like everything we're talking about here. So it does play a role, right? So it's a yes and conversation, not a no or either or. I bring all this up because when it comes to stuff with like with stick mobility or with Jill Miller and Tune Up Fitness Worldwide, who's a good friend of mine, like I think about what could be going on. And there's some studies on SMR and some studies on mobility. And the problem is that when in exercise studies, mobility and self-myofascial release and stretching are usually the control group. Why mm. are they the control group? Because they would assume that they're not doing anything beneficial. Mm. However, as programming gets better, and it doesn't mean if you're in a control, like active controls are good, right? Because you want to be able to signal that out. But it doesn't mean that they're bad. So I was talking to a guy uh, who works at a lab and he was comparing one type of video game to a meditation app. And the, pe- the meditation app was the control and they, the people liked that better, right? Mm. Or vice versa. The meditation app's the intervention. There's like a scrap, like a words with friends style game as the active control. They like the words with friends game better and it still found a beneficial effect. So I give that example because it doesn't mean a control group can't experience benefits. You're probably, if you're measuring cardiorespiratory fitness, of course, your cardiorespiratory fitness will probably not get better with mobility or stretching unless it incorporates breath work and it's very specific, but then we need to study that to determine Mm -hmm. its effect, right? So I say all this to say that I'm interested 
And I could probably hypothesize some things that might be cognitively and psychologically beneficial. The psychological benefits and the benefits on stress and HRV, I think are going to be more apparent because it's typically relaxing, right? It's Mm -hmm. typically causing people to get introspective and use metacognition, which is awareness of the body and try to breathe and downregulate. So I would imagine that's beneficial in that regard. But for cognition, can something like Tai Chi have a similar, the same cognitive effect as something as a mobility program? And I don't know. I don't know because Tai Chi like has coordinative elements, breathing, learning new movements, but then you have things like what you're doing and you have to learn new movements and you do have to be push and pull and move around and create some tension. So more research is needed, but I think you could tease out some potentially beneficial elements there that are just part of good, intelligent programming. That's why I'm sure just grabbing the stick and stretching it like on a door frame mindlessly probably pisses you guys off a little bit because it's, a, it's an intelligent, <laughs> potentially intelligent use of tools that could benefit us. And so when we look at things like the optimal theory of motor learning with like external focus and using external cueing, you know, punch a hole through the wall and that gets them to bend the stick a little bit more and get some more lateral line mobility there, something like that with simultaneous contralateral tension, whatever, right? That's coordinated. They have to think about it, right? With volitional control externally or even internally, that it will, by definition, be a little bit more cognitively demanding. And with a little bit more coordinative demand, where it's like kind of weird and they feel uncoordinated, it's tricky to get. You got two sticks, you're like, what the hell am I doing? That is coordinative. You have to learn that skill. FRC, for instance, to actively control things, that's a motor skill, in my opinion. But these methods, including yours, are so new and that you're doing things that are so specific that there isn't research to suggest. Mm. Right. And that's the problem with new methods and new technologies, the speed at which they release research can't keep up. Yeah. Evidence led assumptions, but that can't be backed up. Also, you can't control how people do everything. And that's why education is so important. So I'd be hard pressed to say, yes, sick mobility is good for your brain. But I could say indirectly, but I could say indirectly, of course it is. Who, you know, because if you're in pain, that brain health exercise program that I talked about, or you get injured, it doesn't matter because you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's important, right? That's very important. Autonomic nervous system regulation, totally important. External or like just volitional focus during mobility probably is going to benefit your brain better than non focused mobility. And so I would put that forward. I, you know, I, I would probably assume that, but I hope you understand my hesitation, but also like, Let's tease it. If we were going to claim or hypothesize that it was better, what what is mobility that is better for your brain versus mobility that's not? Probably some novelty, probably complexity, probably focus, probably coordinative demands, probably something that targets multiple systems, cognitive, psychological, physiological via breath. So we're starting to get more sophisticated with this stuff. And as we get more sophisticated with this stuff, if we identify the elements and the parameters that are part of it, maybe that argument gets stronger and then we can speak about that in future research, even if it's just like a little case series, you know? Yeah. We've been asked multiple times, do you have any research backing up, you know, the benefits of using the stick? And we're just like, not yet. And yeah, it we, takes it, too long. And I think sometimes people, including, you know, people in our position where we're educators or owners of some sort of product, whether it's physical or digital, is that we say, well, research isn't good for this and that. It's just the reality of logistics, you don't have the money to fund research. 
a relationship with someone at a, you know, in an academic institution that's just absolutely stoked and they want to do an investigator initiated trial or something like that, or there's a SBIR grant or a National Institute of Health grant to study your thing, or you're used in a control group or something like that. It's really challenging, right? And so it's like, how, you know, so it, but we can intelligently cite certain elements like I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It can form assumptions and be clear they are assumptions, not claims, and try to answer people's questions the best we can based on the available evidence. And sometimes what I see is people stop where there isn't research and they don't go down that road to make the argument. Make the argument. Let's pull different research and cite it well and not just read the title of the abstract, but really get into it. And you might find that there's something that actually backs up your hypothesis that supports it. And you might find something that doesn't. And that's okay too. And I think people are afraid to do that. I, th- I really think they are. It sounds like a weekend project we're going to have in a couple of months here. But you know, that's the process I would, I would take if we were to try to answer that question. Yeah, I think that's like uh, when it comes to studies, people I think are more afraid of not ending, not ending up with what they think the results should be. Yeah, and that's called bias. And it is. Yeah, and there's a lot be, of that. There's way too much of that. Yeah, you know? when I first started in this industry, this dual tasking thing I thought was like the coming of G- like the next coming of the Messiah. And then as I've gone on, I'm like, okay, maybe that's not all that matters, and that's okay. You know, mm. that's actually a good thing because not everyone can access this and we don't know enough about it yet. We have a, a good amount of evidence, but we need more. And so we can't just say this is the ideal because that's going to be misinformation. It's fear mongering. It's all the BS that's wrong with this world and the health and fitness industry. And so we shouldn't contribute to that. So you've talked a lot about physical activity here. What about um, rest and sleep? Important. There's probably smarter people than me to talk about. <laughs> I'll happily yeah. introduce you to them. And the thing, my thing with brain health is it's such a broad category. And the, I stick to exercise for a variety of reasons. One, I know my lane. Two, I'm an exercise professional. Three, it's my focused area of research. I believe it's the most powerful thing out there for brain health that gets talked about the least. The thing you hear most about first is diet, nutrition, supplements, brain games, drugs of some kind, whether it's amphetamines or uh, nootropics or something like that. You hear about stuff that has the least amount of evidence. Literally, the World Health Organization, when they talk about the cognitive decline epidemic, exercise is at the top of their list for evidence weight. So people, I have a personal vendetta against all the other stuff that gets at the top of the list that has the least evidence. I want to reverse that. The other reason I don't, I only talk about exercise, frustratingly to some people, is because I don't want to pretend I'm an expert in something brain health related without really knowing about it. So I'll be in a talk, and I I shit you not, I'll be in a talk, it's called Your Brain on Exercise, and in the middle of the talk, someone raises their hands, raises their hand and asks, what's the effect of psychedelics on the brain? I'm like, like, people do that, though, because everyone's, I I appreciate it, because everyone's really curious about brain health, Mm -hmm. I have to stay in my lane. Now, I can speak to exercise, I've taken courses on exercise, uh, uh, or sorry, I, I can speak to sleep. I've taken courses on sleep. I know about sleep. It's really important. In fact, I'd say it's probably more or just as important as exercise for brain health. It's challenging for me to prioritize, but when people don't sleep well, the effects are felt immediately, right? If people have untreated sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing, that's terrible for your brain. In fact, most of the people, most of the population I see has an issue with sleep that has not been addressed. So I will say it's extremely important. Why, I think, is another podcast, which I'm happy to introduce to someone who will 
give you all the information out there. And I can speak to the lymphatic system and cognition and amyloid plaque deposition or lack thereof and blood flow and the REM cycles and stuff like that. I just don't get into it because otherwise other people think they're going to ask me about that more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fantastic. Well, sir, we know your schedule is busy and we do appreciate you coming on, Ryan. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. We've been looking for letting me blab. You guys are awesome. No, man, that's tons of great information. Where can people find you or get, you know, your content? Yeah. So I'm on Hinge and Tinder. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> if people want to find me on social, they can go to Instagram at glatt, health, glatt.brainhealth. And then my website is uh, brainhealthtrainer.com. That's the name of my course is the Brain Health Trainer course. So brainhealthtrainer.com is the name of the website. If people are trying to get a hold of my course, I would actually recommend going to ACE's website. Cool.org and look at their new senior fitness specialist. I think it's like 50% off right now. It's really cheap. And you basically get two courses for the same price of half of one. Okay. Uh, and so uh, that course is really awesome because it's updated to include information about training older adults. It's got information about nutrition, behavior change. And also the second half of the course is just my new updated course, like my, my greatest work to date. So I would strongly, it's like normally 600 something bucks. It's like 270 right now. It's ridiculous. So I'd actually encourage people to go there. But if people want to go to my website, look at a few webinars I've done, get a direct link to the course, they can go to brainhealthtrainer.com. Awesome. This, so that course on on the ACE website, do you have to be an ACE certified trainer to no, access you do it? Not. Or? It's a okay. specialist course. So they have like their flagship courses, like their health coach, medical exercise specialist, group exercise specialist, and personal trainer. This is a specialist course. And I have specialists and certified and trainer that all kind of are intermixed. But you do not have to be an ACE certified trainer uh, to get this course. In fact, it has CEUs for like every organization. Oh, great. Perfect. And so I, I recommend it because I think good education for older adults, which comprise two thirds of our industry, is really missing. Yes. Yeah. It's not yes. just about balance or musculoskeletal issues, it's about they're a human. So all these dimensions of wellness, including brain health. That's my bias and contribution. And so I definitely rec- people recommend checking that out. Awesome. And uh, we look forward to having you on again. We can chat yeah. more specifically about some other fantastic topics. Absolutely. Awesome. And to uh, all our listeners out there until next episode, be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs>